This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. And let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And we'll be in chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles available on the sides. And uh, if you have one of those Bibles, you'll find this passage on page 807. Luke chapter 4, page 807 on those Bibles that are provided. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take one as a gift from us so that you'll have a copy of God's Word. And before we look to His Word together, let's go to Him in prayer now. Lord, we do confess our need for You. And we pray this morning as we look to Your Word that You would show us how sufficient You are. How perfectly and fully You have met our deepest need to live a righteous life in the wake of nothing but death and failure. From Adam to Israel, Lord Jesus, You have won the victory. And we pray we would see that You have done that for us when we put our faith and trust in You. So Jesus, we pray that You would be exalted. Exalted in the hearts of Your people. That as we see Your victory... it. There would be grace and mercy that we see for us that enables assurance and holiness and boldness, risk-taking for the glory of God. We pray the gospel would be clear. We pray your people would be edified and you'd receive all the glory. We ask it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. After a little break in studying uh, Luke's and studying a few other passages, we're, we're going to pick up our series this morning in Luke's gospel called Seeing Jesus. And if you, ha- if you don't have a sermon card, there's some sermon cards available that will guide you through our, our series. And that is our prayer for the series. Each time we come to Luke's gospel that we would see Jesus Christ. And we've come to this place in Luke 4 where Luke is finishing up kind of an introduction of who Jesus is. Luke's purpose is that we would know Jesus Christ. And we would see Him as He is. And that we would know with certainty the things that that we've heard and, and we've seen in the Gospels about Him are true. And so we've seen um, John the Baptist's birth foretold and then come to pass. We've seen Jesus' own birth foretold and then come to pass. John is this witness promised in the Old Testament pointing to the coming Messiah. Jesus then comes on the scene as the promised Lord of salvation. And Luke is identifying Him in that way and and, and putting Him forward in that way for us really in these these last chapters of chapters 3 and 4 as the obedient Son of God who will represent His people to save them. He is a new and better Adam. 
a new and better Israel to save his people from their sins. And he gives kind of a three-pronged approach, if you've been with us, looking at it to identify Jesus as the Son of God. It starts with his baptism, and then his genealogy, and then now we come to his temptations in the wilderness. And so at his baptism, Jesus stood, if you remember, in the place of sinners, even though he had no sin, and the heavens opened, the Spirit descended upon him, and the Father vocally proclaimed him as the beloved Son of God, his beloved Son. And then his baptism is followed in Luke's gospel directly by his genealogy. And Luke begins there with Jesus and traces his descent all the way to the very first man, all the way to Adam, which puts really all of humanity in view as it relates to his mission. So Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by the Father. He's associated with Adam, who's referred to, notice in chapter 3, verse 38, as the Son of God. That's the last sentence in the genealogy, that Adam was the Son of God. And so with that ringing in our ears, Luke brings us now into the desert to get a close-up view of the temptations of Jesus Christ, which again are going to center around his identity as the Son of God. Satan is going to directly attack his identity as the Son of God. And two out of these three temptations that we see here, if you are the Son of God, then dot, 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 he says. So in his temptations, Jesus is representing all of humanity as the new Adam, the true Son of God. Will he be faithful where Adam was, was not faithful and failed? That's what's at stake in our passage. Will he follow the way of Israel in the wilderness or will he obey? And all this, all this, of course, takes place in this kind of theologically loaded location of the wilderness. When Jesus is at his weakest physically and the temptations that come at him, friends, are genuine temptations, real temptations. And they all get to one question for him. Jesus, do you really trust God? Do you really trust God and what he said about you? Do you really trust what he said? If God really loved you, Jesus, would he allow you to be in the situation that you're in right now? If God really loved you and was trustworthy, why would he withhold the thing that you feel that you need the most? Why would he want your physical desires to go unmet? If you desire food, why wouldn't God give it to you? You're the son of God. And if he's not giving it to you, you should get it for yourself. Is that a bad thing? Everybody needs to eat. Take what you need. Take what you want. It doesn't have to be so hard, does it? Why would sickness and pain be in God's plan for one of His own? Friend, have you ever been in the wilderness? Questioning, wandering, thirsty, hungry, Lonely, afraid, tempted. We all have. And we all will be again. But this passage tells us that Jesus went there first. And because he did, our wilderness wanderings are forever changed. Our temptations are forever changed. Our failures are forever changed. Changed, And it's not mainly because we have a good example to follow here. We do have that, but it's because we have a Savior to worship, a refuge to run to, 
a high priest to pray for us, a victorious king who has conquered sin. And he is not just anybody, he is the Son of God. That's Luke's primary point and purpose for this passage. If you want to say, what's the point of this passage? In one sentence, put your trust in Jesus, the Son of God. Put your trust in Jesus, the Son of God. There are other secondary purposes that we will see here as it relates to our own battle with temptation, especially as it relates to to trusting God's Word, friend, but those are not primary. The Word will always point us to Christ. And so I want to frame the section around these temptations that are recorded by Luke. They really deal with kind of three areas. This is not the outline. This is what the temptations deal with. Provision, power, and protection. That's the way Satan comes at Jesus. So our charge, therefore, is to look at the way Jesus succeeds in these areas. And so we want to see Jesus, trust Jesus. Here's our outline as, number one, our provider. Our provider. Number two, our king. And number three, our redeemer. Jesus is our provider, king, and redeemer. Our victory beloved, is in Jesus. May we have eyes to see that this morning. First, we look to Jesus as our provider. Number one, our provider. I think it's always interesting when we come to passages like this to ask the question, how do we know this happened? Where do we get the information for this story? I think Jesus has to be the source, doesn't he? I don't think Luke is interviewing Satan to figure out what happened. Jesus is, 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 the, is the one who's telling the disciples about this story. And, and Luke eventually would have perhaps interviewed and, and understood it through them. And I just think that's very interesting that Jesus is, is telling us, in a sense, this is what happened in the desert. So the first two verses here set the context. Let's look there. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Uh, We saw the Holy Spirit, remember, come upon Jesus uh, at his baptism in chapter 3. And now he's described as being full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, which is actually going to characterize his life and ministry as you follow his life and ministry in the Gospels. He's going to be led, dependent, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Luke bookends this passage with a kind of a, a note about him being coming kind of out of the temptations in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. We'll say more about those verses next week, Lord willing. So we just want to observe here that the Spirit leads Jesus in the wilderness. Matthew and Mark both speak really clearly about this. The Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness. Mark says that the Spirit cast him into the wilderness. And friends, I just think that's significant for us just to to note as we come into this account That the location of these temptations is not by accident. That the Spirit is leading him there and leading him through the wilderness every step of the way. So God means, God the Holy Spirit means for Jesus to go through this. 
This confrontation with the devil is not a surprise attack by the enemy. I think we should see Jesus as being on the offensive. Fresh out of the baptism, fresh out of being declared as the Son of God, He is going into this place and confronting the enemy. Luke doesn't introduce the devil much. He doesn't say much about him. I think he assumes his readers are going to know who he is and I think are going to associate him with what he's just said in chapter 3, mentioning Adam, the son of God. And we know the story of Adam and his interaction with Satan. This is the same Satan, the same devil. And we should be thinking in terms of the garden as we, as we read this passage. Luke is just, he's showing that to us. When Satan appeared in the form of a serpent and suggested that the first humans doubt God's word, if it was really true, if God was really good, now there's a new Adam and Satan is going to do the exact same thing. He's going to try the exact same thing with Jesus. Another connection Luke makes in, is, is in the wilderness is the duration of the temptation. So not just the location, but the duration, 40 days. And by the way, that phrase, being tempted, is in the present tense, which just indicates that these temptations, it's not just three temptations, these happened throughout these 40 days. Satan is going at Jesus for these 40 days straight. And these, these temptations are likely the culmination of this season of temptation. Now, there are many significant 40s in the Old Testament. I'd love to go through them with you, but we don't have time. I think the most significant is, is of course, the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. And so if you look at Numbers 13 to 14, the Israelite spies go for 40 days, spying out the land that God had promised to give them. And then they fail to trust God's promise. And so the Lord declares that they're going to wander in the wilderness for kind of a year for every day they're going to spy out the, the land. 40 years. We know that in, in many places in the Old Testament, Hosea 11 is one place where, where God refers to Israel as his son, as his own son. And we, we know of places in the wilderness wanderings, like Exodus 16, for example. There's a season when the people, God's son, wandering in the wilderness are particularly complaining about not having enough provision, not having food in the wilderness. And so here we have the son of God, hungry in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. This sets the table for us. The stakes are high. The new Adam, the new Israel, will he prevail or fail? Absolutely, our salvation hangs in the balance. So the first temptation is recorded there in verse 3. Look there. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Immediately we see the, the trademark uh, kind of questioning of God's word from Satan. If you are the Son of God, sounds a lot like, did God really say, Genesis 3, his playbook is open. It is pretty much set. This is how he works. Casting doubt on the goodness and trustworthy of God and on his word. He hasn't really changed. God's holding back on you. Now, on its face, this temptation seems fairly harmless. Uh, we know it's not a sin for Jesus to, to, turn, to, to create bread out of nothing. He's going to do that later in his ministry. He's going to feed others with this bread. So I don't think that's the, the issue. The issue at stake is Satan is saying, if you are the son of God, why in the world would God allow you to be in the wilderness for so long without food to suffer like this? It's hot, Jesus. 
You're tired. You're probably, he's probably near death. 40 days, that, that's a long time. Where is God? You need to take care of yourself. It's a slight introduction of mistrust. Jesus, you need to take it from here. A slight separation. This is the question that the Israelites were, were struggling with in the wilderness. Why have you brought us out here from Egypt, Lord, to kill us? We want to go back. We had it better there when we were in slavery. So how would Jesus respond? Friends, we need to be reminded that all of these temptations that come at him are real. They're genuine. We often think, but when we read of Jesus' obedience, well, yeah, that was Jesus in passages like this. But we need to understand Jesus is not leaning into his divine nature to endure these temptations. He's actually doing this as a man. He has to, right? That's why the incarnation happens, that he could be fully human to fully represent men who have sinned against God. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. 40 days. Some of your stomachs are growling right now. What if I told you that you could not eat from today until April 14th to the glory of God? That's a long time. These temptations are real. We could, we could get into kind of a discussion about the impeccability of Christ and the way that because he has two natures and one is a divine nature that it's, it's actually impossible theologically for him to sin. But you need to understand there's nothing that takes away the genuine nature of Jesus' temptations. His body is screaming for food. Uh, this, this would put him near death or starvation. It's weakened. He's famished. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. His temptations are real and genuine. And Jesus responds to each temptation by, by quoting Scripture in this passage. He quotes specifically from Deuteronomy, which, by the way, I think is a way of, of him locating himself in this section of Deuteronomy 6 to 8 that is dealing especially with Israel in the wilderness and Israel's failure in the wilderness. He quotes all these passages from that section to say, I am the new, better, faithful Israel. There's a great reversal kind of motif that's about to happen. And he quotes there from Deuteronomy 8, 3 and verse 4. And Jesus answered him, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone. This is Deuteronomy 8. The context there is the Lord teaching the people. He was leading them in the wilderness. He hadn't forgotten them. He humbled them. He was testing to see what was in their hearts. Verse 3, if you read the whole verse, Deuteronomy 8, 3, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Jesus is pointing to. This is the test. And Jesus responds with resounding faithfulness. He says, in effect, if God has led me into the wilderness, he will lead me out. 
If God has led me into hunger and not provided food, he will feed me in his timing. I will not run ahead of him. I will not make my own way. He is my great provider. He cares for me. That doesn't change, Satan, in the wilderness. Life is more than food. It's about knowing God and living by his word. He is what sustains me, not food. He is my everything. I'm not trying to just survive. I exist to know my Father. Beloved, that is your Savior. Adam and Eve took and ate food when they were tempted because they didn't trust God. Israel complained about food. They didn't have enough. They didn't trust God. Jesus trusts His Father to provide. He wasn't in a lush garden, but a desert. His mission is self-denial for the salvation of others. And nothing is going to derail that mission. And in John's Gospel, Jesus says the ultimate provision that God would give His people from heaven is not manna, but Him. Himself. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Beloved, He is our ultimate provider. He satisfies. He is where we will find true life. Friend, have you found true life in Jesus? He is our great provider. He is also our great king. Let's look at the next temptation that Satan brings to Jesus. Number two, as we look to him, we see him as our king. Look at verse five. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Again, these temptations are real temptations. Jesus truly tempted. And we know that not just from Hebrews 4.15 and other passages, but just by knowing the way Satan works. Um, I don't know when the last time you were tempted to turn bread, stone into bread. Right? He doesn't tempt us with things that we can't do, that we don't want to do, right? And so Satan doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do those things. He comes at us with things that he knows that would actually tempt us, and he does that with Jesus. So Jesus could, and therefore, we should see these temptations as getting at the heart, really, of his mission. And I think this one especially. Satan is trying to derail Jesus' mission. Did he really have the authority to to offer all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? Look, I think it's right to suspect, to be suspect of every word that comes out of Satan's mouth as a lie. He's the father of lies, but he is also incredibly powerful. Like biblically, let's say some true things. He is incredibly powerful. And this seems to be a kind of vision that he wraps up Jesus in to show him all the kingdoms of the world. And we don't know if these are, you know, present and future kingdoms We don't know all those things, but certainly it's a picture of the power of of Rome bowing down to Jesus and and Israel being being head over over that and, and, and every nation perhaps on the globe flying a Jesus flag, all submitting to him, all giving glory to him. And Satan says, I can give you all this glory, the nations, now. In John's gospel, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of the world. 
And he says in Revelation 13 too that he has been given great power and authority. There the context is particularly over government powers. But friends, we know this is a delegated authority and power. This is a power with an expiration date. He rules by permission from God Almighty. Nevertheless, these temptations are real. So what is the temptation? Well, to get what was promised to Jesus apart from the cross. To get what he had, he knew that God had promised him apart from the suffering and agony of the cross. Take a shortcut to the crown by bypassing the cross. Jesus knew the Father had promised all the world would worship him as king. But his path goes through Calvary. Satan is offering him another way. Without pain, without sacrifice, and you still get all the good stuff. Imagine what Jesus saw. You know, he's not seeing wicked governments. All that he could do with government set up for people's good. Reversing the effects of the tyranny of Rome. Establishing some peace on earth. So much good. It's another path to glory. Just like Satan gave to Adam in the garden. You can be like God. Adam and Eve were made in God's very image. They were already like God. They had everything that they needed, but Satan showed them another way. If they would just listen to him. If they would just listen. If Jesus would just bow down to worship. There's always a catch. A hook embedded in the tasty bait. Worship me. I don't know if this is just a, you know, maybe just a word. Maybe a a hitting the, the, the ground with your knees for just a moment. But certainly it represents complete cosmic treason. And Jesus summarizes his response with kind of a a section of Deuteronomy 6. You see it in verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus' life is, is dedicated to live and serve His heavenly Father. His kingdom is not of this world. It will come through the purchase of a people for himself by dying for them. There is no political salvation, no military victory that will bring us to God. Friends, Jesus came for atonement, to bring forgiveness, to bring reconciliation with God, to impute righteousness, to to give eternal life to sinners who trust in him. And it would only be by living a life of full obedience and self-sacrifice like we're seeing before us right now in Luke 4. We say that often. We present the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect, obedient life where we're looking at it now. It would only be by that, only by his atoning death, that he would absorb the punishment for the sins of his people on the cross. God would pour out his wrath on Jesus. That's the only way that he could bring us to God. The only way that we could be saved. And when he saves us, he saves a people who will worship him. A worshiping people. A people that worship the one true God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why we're gathered here today. To worship our King who made provision for us. Who went through the gauntlet of temptation and never sinned. And who took our sin on himself. And friend, now he calls us to to follow him. Not by taking shortcuts. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, think about the temptations of Satan, 
Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus loses his life to bring us salvation. And now he calls us to follow him, deny ourselves and follow him that we would worship God alone, to turn away from idolatry, from setting the agenda ourselves for our own discipleship instead of submitting our lives to Jesus' reign as king. In Psalm 2, David wrote of this coming king who would also be the son of God. Listen to the promises that are there in Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Friends, this is the promise of God that Jesus looks to. God's promise is worth waiting for. You'll notice that these temptations are all kind of just just little reflections of true promises that God has made to Jesus. These promises are worth waiting for, suffering for, because Satan's words are empty. Jesus is going the way of the cross. And that is where his true exaltation will take place. Paul says in Philippians 2, he was obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Jesus is our King. And we should see him as our King in Luke 4. And all that is what qualifies him to be our Redeemer. That's the last thing we'll see. Number three, Jesus is our Redeemer. Satan's not finished with Jesus, not even close. Look at verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. I think it's significant that the last temptation here ends kind of in Jerusalem, perhaps a foreshadowing to Satan's ultimate kind of work there and and him dying, the cross. We're not sure exactly what part of the temple Satan takes Jesus to, but one of the highest points is the, the, the royal portico. It overlooks this valley, the Kidron Valley. It's about 450 feet above the ground. Uh, Josephus uh, remarked that if you look down, your eyes would just grow dizzy from the height. And so you just imagine them standing there on this pinnacle, looking down at the hustle and bustle, the crowds of, of worshipers and, and priests. Notice Satan, is a, he, he's, he's doing a little bit of an audible. He's adapting his temptations. He's noticed this all quote scripture thing. And so he's going to do the same. He decides to quote some back to Jesus. He quotes Psalm 91. This picture of protection, of God's protection of his faithful ones, even through angels. But the point of that psalm is that God is our refuge and strength. Not that we will not have trials and troubles in this life. God can absolutely always be trusted for our protection. But Satan twists the scripture for his own purposes. And friends, I just want you to hear that, that, that reality. Twisting scripture for our own purposes is satanic. If you try, you can weaponize the Bible to legitimize sin to get money for yourself and power and justify injustice. But it is a satanic work. Beware of it. Beware of teachers that twist Scripture because they are doing the work of Satan for themselves. And you should have that cap on anywhere you go, including this room. When you hear someone stand up and teach the Bible, 
to see that they're actually teaching the, 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 the true text, the true meaning of Scripture, and not twisting things around for their own purposes. Jesus sees right through this. Right? He, he, he inspired the Scriptures. Throwing yourself off the temple is testing God. It's putting yourself in the driver's seat of God's plan. I think you'll notice in the Gospels that those that listen to the whispers of demons and those that are possessed by demons typically find themselves being hurt and injured. Throwing themselves into fires and and hurting themselves and being near death. That ought not surprise us. Satan wants to destroy us. Jesus, he wants us all all gone, and particularly Jesus. But again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. Again in chapter 6. We're in verse 12 now. Look there. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this testing refers to the time in Exodus 17 when the people were camped at Massa. And listen, there was no water at Massa. And... God led them to Massa. No water, he led them there. The people quarreled with Moses. Why did you bring us out here to die? They almost stone him. They almost kill him. And mercifully, mercifully, the Lord provides water. You remember how? Through Moses striking the rock. And I think that highlights it's interesting that God kind of highlights their testing and sin because he names the place Massa. He could have named it water. He could have named it grace. But he named it Massa, which means something like quarreling. Like that's what he wants us to see is that this was a bad failure of the people. They're essentially saying, we don't trust the Lord. If God doesn't do blank, when I think he should do blank, he doesn't care. That's testing the Lord. And so Satan offers the same temptation to Jesus. You say you're the son of God, then throw yourself down and everyone will see the miraculous way God will save you and angels will come and then they will whisk you away as their Messiah. All glory to God. So Jesus here finds himself tempted by Satan to test the Lord. But he just goes back to Israel's failure at Massa. And and there, even when the people were faithless, even when they complained and were accusing Moses and God of forsaking them, God gave them water to drink. And the way he did it was really powerful. I don't know if you remember, but he had Moses strike the rock. Water flowed. So I think at one level it reminds us that, that God can do anything. That's why we read that, that passage from, from Isaiah at the beginning. You're never outside the realm of his power to save. But more specifically... God is showing them that he is actually their provision. Listen to Exodus 17, verse 6. He says, Behold, I, this is the Lord speaking, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so and in the sight of the elders of Israel. So do you see the picture? God himself on the rock when Moses strikes it. God wants us to make a connection, doesn't he, between himself and the provision that the people need. I'm the one that took you out of Egypt. 
I'm the one who's going to provide for you and sustain you. And ultimately the one who's going to forgive even your grumbling and testing and faithlessness. You need me. And, and Paul, writing into the Corinthians, sees this clearly, doesn't he? First Corinthians, he's speaking about Israel, refers to this passage. He looks and he says in chapter 10, verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Not only will Jesus not be tempted to put the Lord to the test, he is the rock that will be struck for the salvation of all those that would trust in him. He will provide the water of redemption and salvation to those who are in the desert, thirsting and wandering because of sin. He is our Redeemer. Jesus will trust the Father and the Father's timing. He will put His hands in the Father's hands. It won't be by, by this kind of like, almost like attempted suicide, jumping off the top of a building. Not some flashy stunt magician doing tricks. It's going to be much more powerful than that. It's going to be much more holistic than that. Much more risky. Much, much deeper because he is going to entrust his very life to the Father. He's going to do the Father's will even when people are nailing things into his body and putting, putting spears into his body and crown of thorns onto his head. There are no safety nets on the cross. Nobody's going to be there to catch him. He's going to trust the Father all the way to death and even take the wrath of God for his people. That's a much bigger leap of faith than what Satan's talking about. And the Father is not going to forsake him, but will raise him up on the third day, victorious for all to see that Jesus is alive. And he is raised as our Redeemer, Friend, that is your Savior. Turn to Him. We've all faced similar temptations that we're reading about here in Luke 4. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know we have all failed. Every one of us. Failed to trust God for our provision, for our protection. We've tried to gain power for ourselves, avoiding His ways and His Word. But Jesus came to change all of that and to rescue us from our sin. So run to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Turn away from walking your own way. I said earlier that Satan wasn't done and he's still not finished. Look at verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So Satan is defeated, but he's not done. There's going to be multiple places in Luke where we see his influence showing up, especially the closer Jesus gets to the cross. But for now, Jesus has won a decisive victory over him, a victory that Adam didn't win, Israel didn't win. And then ironically, Matthew actually records that angels do come to minister to Jesus in the desert, the promise of Psalm 91. So Jesus is committed to walking the path that the Father has laid out for him. Death and resurrection for his people, for us. Satan is going to be back, but Jesus is going to conquer him and in his death cancel the power and dominion of sin. And beloved, for us, that, that is really, really good news. 
That means sin's dominion has been broken in our lives. We're no longer enslaved to sin, Paul says in Romans 6. Jesus canceled sin's mastery over us and has gifted us with the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to lead us. The victory over sin has been won decisively. Now, we don't experience the full victory over sin in our lives day in and day out. We're we're, we're not yet glorified. We still sin and we turn away from our sin and repent. We struggle against sin, but we do it with the power of Jesus Christ. So just a few things about that struggle. Primarily, this is about Jesus winning the victory. Let me say a couple things as we're concluding about that struggle. I love... um, Augustine's comment that Satan can do no more than suggest. Only the tempted person can perform the wrong act. You know, you think about what he says, throw yourself down. It's a suggestion, right? Often our biggest problem isn't Satan. It's our own desires. It's our own flesh. But whatever it is that's tempting us, when we're tempted, what do we do? And the clear answer, I think, from Scripture is flee to Jesus. Flee to Jesus to Christ because of passages like Luke 4. We have a high priest who has gone before us and sympathizes with us. That's the other part of Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.15 talks about the real temptations of Christ. 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So we only come to the throne of Christ because we've sinned. And what do we get when we go? Mercy. Because of what Christ has done for us. We receive mercy from Jesus and grace to help us then and there in a time of need. We go to Jesus. We have a, we have a, a knee-jerk response, I think, when we're tempted to get, to get isolated in the dark somewhere where no one can see. Fight that impulse. We flee to Jesus. He is there with arms wide open. When we fail... When we're tempted, come to me, he says. He is a merciful, faithful high priest. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's who we're going to. Someone who knows the temptation and yet is without sin. He is our high priest. We're we're not supposed to fight Satan one-on-one. Just get, let's get that picture out of our mind. We're going to intimidate and just go after him. That's not what we see. We're in the one who defeated him. We're, we're going to the one who defeated him. Decisively, finally, we're in Christ. Flee to Christ. You have Jesus. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save us fully, completely in all of our imperfection and messiness. And he lives to make intercession, to pray for us. You're not, you're not bugging Jesus when you come to him in your temptation. He lives to pray for you. He loves you. Go to him. And then finally, one more text, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we're going to use Scripture the way Jesus used Scripture in our temptations. These are some, some fodder for us, right? We can, we, can, we can understand that God has given us help, and the help points us to Jesus. These Scriptures point us to Him. I want to endure temptation. I want to see the way of escape. And the way of escape is Christ. I want to flee to Christ. I want to know that if God leads me into the wilderness, I can trust Him that He's going to lead me out and through in His timing. Because Jesus is our great provider, our King, and our Redeemer. He saves to the uttermost because He is the faithful Son of God. Let's hide ourselves in Him. Our victory is in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. What a picture it is, Lord, to see on one hand your, your victory over sin and temptation and on the other hand an invitation now to come and sit at your table as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. To be reminded that it is the, the blood of Christ and the body of Christ for us. Lord, would you be ministering now, we pray? We've heard your word. Would you be applying it to our hearts? Would you take the, the weakness that's been on display here in these last few minutes and do something eternally powerful with it? Would you bring about fruit, Lord, for your glory? We know that you are there. We know that you love us. Help us to come to you. Help us to, to walk in this victory that you have won, Jesus, over sin and death. We love you. We worship you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.